Start over from the top. Three, yeah, okay. why not? Yeah, yeah, much easier. It's Friday, April the 5th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darach, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Floating Voter, and with me today is my fellow Dutch News Contributing Editor and official Brexit chronicler Molly Quell. Our third regular co-host, Pal Peters, has been otherwise engaged this week, though we'd like to reassure everyone he's been going around in a taxi and not a self-destructive F-16 fighter plane. That was a great story. <laughs> it's a great story. Fighter plane yeah, it's about the fighter plane that blew itself up. Yeah, it blew it? itself up. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, floating voter. Gordon, tell me about that. Yeah, this is a surprise announcement, which we'll mention actually a bit later on when we get into the news, that uh, British citizens in, in the Netherlands are going to be allowed to vote in the European elections. So I thought I'd cast my last vote as a British national in the Netherlands uh, for the water board, but uh, I have the exciting uh, prospect now of uh, voting for the European Parliament, uh, even though my country will have no MEPs in the new Parliament, unless something else happens with Brexit. No, Brexit is a disaster. I know this <laughs> because I've been chronicling it. Yes. I've been doing nothing but writing about Brexit for the last week, two weeks. Yeah, so just... somehow you've managed to get even more deeply admired in, be- in Brexit I just, than I am. Even I though... just don't. I hate Brexit so much. <laughs> we were talking about this earlier that, uh, that it's just... You keep writing these articles, it's like the same thing over and over again, and at some point you just can't figure out how to rephrase things that yeah. you've said 15 or 20 times. How to like just tell the way. same story yeah. you've been telling for the last two years. And then like, can I just like, cut and paste all of these paragraphs over and over again? Because I just can't come up with any new words it's for fine. describing this stuff. It, I think it's okay, it's yeah. what everybody else is doing. Yeah, I think so um, too. But what's been your favourite Brexit story of the week? The, my favourite Brexit story... Oh, that's hard. There are two. Uh, one is the non-Brexit Brexit story, which is, is that there were nude protesters in the House of Commons <laughs> while they were debating Brexit. But actually, they were there about climate change. Yeah. Um, they were not there about Brexit. So no. it was nice to talk about something besides yeah. Brexit. Even What's though... yeah, well, what I loved about that story was that a part of the protest was that they glued themselves to the windows. Yeah. And he's quite strong super glue. They reckoned the police would just tear them away in time so yeah. they wouldn't have any problems. But they were actually allowed to stay there. Yeah. And they ended up so firmly glued to the windows. They had to be, it took, actually took a while to remove to them. To remove them. <laughs> yeah. Which is ridiculous. And then... Um, to add to the ridiculousness of the House of Commons, there was a major leak in the press gallery yeah. this week, and it just, like, dumped water on everybody, <laughs> which is definitely a metaphor for Brexit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's brilliant, yeah. And they actually had to suspend uh, Parliament uh, because all this water came into the press gallery. But, yeah, to me, that, that just summed up Brexit. They managed to hit an iceberg while they're on land. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In a minute, we'll bring you the OPEF of the week, but first we have a very important announcement. Extremely important. Extremely important. The Dutch News Podcast is now on Patreon. So not only can you listen to Molly and I and sometimes Paul wittering on, but you now get to pay for the privilege, if you so wish. So if you appreciate our efforts to make sense of four-party coalitions and bonnetes affairs, or you just want to feed us stopwaffles, head on over to patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. You'll be rewarded with your very own personalised shout-out on the podcast, and we'll try and come up with some other goodies as well. For every person that donates at least five euros, we will make Gordon eat a lavender strawberry waffle. <laughs> Please don't. Please yeah. donate yeah. so much. Yeah, and for every 10 euros we receive, we'll extend Brexit by another half an hour. <laughs> exactly. We've got a special deal with Donald Tusk. <laughs> Donald Tusk. Yeah. So uh, we will um, move on now to the op of the week, which is a very special op It's a very yeah. special op Yeah, because op-ef. we actually managed to create our own op We managed to create our own op 
So, a Dutch news story about British nationals to be banned from Amsterdam coffee shops after the United Kingdom leaves the European Union went a little viral this week. <laughs> story was widely shared on Twitter, received hundreds of comments on Facebook, and was picked up by several news websites. However, if you looked at the date, you might have guessed the story wasn't entirely true. Uh, if you believed it, you fell for yet another Dutch news classic April Fool's joke. Not everyone was fooled, though. The story was included in Politico's April Fool's roundup. Yeah, it was very nice of them. Uh, we did seed a few clues in the story, but it wasn't quite uh, So many clues. <laughs> so, the, for people who are unfamiliar with this, every year we do an April Fool's story. Yeah, like, and, like many media outlets. Uh, and every year we start planning our April Fool's story on about April 2nd. No, <laughs> I think it's generally the first. Yeah. Season. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's, there's usually like we start discussing now what <laughs> yeah, we're going to do for yeah. next year. Yeah. Um, and the way that it works is we come up with an idea and then everyone on the uh, team gets to be a person in the story. Yeah. So you get to be somebody that was interviewed. So everyone is sort of always arguing about who they get to be. Yeah, which role you get to play. Yeah. Uh, and in this particular uh, story, there was, you know, the angry <laughs> person that lives in Amsterdam who doesn't like the British tourists and there was yeah. a British tourist and there was an e there was an EU official yeah. and there was someone from the Gemeente Amsterdam. Yeah. Uh, the Gemeente Amsterdam <laughs> <laughs> sent us an angry email yes. uh, complaining that we take down our fake news story because Boss de Aard um, <laughs> was not a spokesperson for the Gemeente Amsterdam. Yeah. I love the fact they felt the need to point this out to us when we made up the name yes. and then the name was Bastard. <laughs> Who were you in the story? I was a lawyer by the, the lawyer. name of a Tjerk Meyerkok, who was um, who was explaining that the British citizens would have a case under um, freedom of movement European Union legislation, but of mm. course they kind of scuttled at themselves on that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was the uh, uh, research senior researcher from yeah. the uh, European Union something on drugs, basically, and my name was Mary Jane, <laughs> which was very entertaining. Yes. Yeah. So we created our own. Op so we created our own opf, uh, basically. Yeah, we yeah, were so very opf. We we also had a character in the story called a Viet Pot. I can't remember what his uh, his role in it I was. I don't remember. But, yeah. but the great thing, I think the great thing about that is a Viet Pot is an actual real Dutch person's name. Yeah, that's a real yeah. Dutch person's yeah. name. Yeah. So, I mean, Mary Jane is technically like a name. Kind of, yeah. yeah. It could potentially be a name, but there is actually a person a called Viet Pot. Yeah, that is funny. Yeah. We'll link to the uh, April Fool's story in the liner notes so we you will. can read it if you haven't seen it. Well, this week we'll tell you why the prison system was accused of serious failings in the case of a convicted rapist who killed a woman, why pressure is growing to ban unvaccinated children from nurseries, and we've got important news for British citizens ahead of the European elections, as we just touched on. In our discussion, we're asking if we should be concerned about the widespread use of prescription painkillers. A damning report into the rape and the murder of a young woman near Utrecht two years ago has blamed failings by the Justice Ministry, the Prison Service and the Psychiatric Clinic where her killer was being treated at the time. Michael Pay attacked Anna Faber as she was cycling home past the clinic in Den Dolder where he was in residential care. The report by the safety board said that Pay had blocked the clinic from accessing his prison records when he was transferred, so they were unaware he'd been in jail for sex offences. All they knew was that he'd been treated for aggression and drug abuse. In fact, he'd been jailed for 11 years for raping two teenage girls as well as a string of robberies. No assessments were carried out into whether he posed a risk to the outside world and he was allowed to visit the village every day, unsupervised, as part of his rehabilitation. Pay was jailed for 28 years as well as time in a psychiatric prison for the rape and murder of Anna Faber. 
The court described him as a man without scruples who employed disproportionate violence. What has the um, political reaction been to this, Gordon? There's been a long-running series of reports and a lot of questions asked uh, from all sides. It was a very difficult day in Parliament for Security Minister Sander Decker, who accepted most of the criticism from all sides. He said the report made painful reading and showed that, quote, the government failed to protect society. That worked in the sense that it stopped it becoming a political row and Decker received wide support for his suggestions for reforming the system. He wants to make it compulsory to carry out risk assessments of patients such as Michael Bay and inmates will only be allowed out on conditional release if they allow all information about them to be shared between everybody who's involved in their care. Decker insisted that officials were aware of the need for urgent action. Nobody wants these terrible things to be repeated, he said. And so what are like the experts on these kinds of things saying? Have they weighed in? Yalma von Mahler, who's the former head of the Peter Ban Centre, that's a place that carries out these psychiatric assessments of criminal, criminal suspects and convicts, told news here that the core of the problem was the way information was shared. So psychiatric clinics have a very different culture from prisons because they treat the people they deal with as patients rather than inmates. Which makes sense. Which makes yeah, sense, yeah. yes, but that brings in issues of privacy and patient confidentiality. And Pei was able to um, uh, exploit that, to object to the prison passing on details of his offences to the clinic. And that meant they didn't have a complete picture of who he was and how to treat him. So Vermala argued there should be a better balance to be struck between the privacy of patients, um, which is obviously a, uh, f- a vital right, but also the safety of society. Right. Well, yeah, it's a really terrible case. Yeah, it's an awful case. and It has highlighted uh, all kinds of flaws and loopholes in the system. Yeah. So hopefully things will improve. In other terrible cases, three children in a crash in The Hague have come down with the measles, and a fourth child may have the disease as well. That's according to public broadcaster NOS this week. The children involved had not been vaccinated. One of them may have caught the disease while on holiday. One of the children is over the age of 14 months when it should have been vaccinated against the disease, but the others were younger. Community Health Service GGD Haaklande has not revealed which crash is involved, but it said the disease may spread and that it is looking into vaccinating children who are currently unprotected, including babies. The children in The Hague bring the total measles cases in the Netherlands to 12 so far this year, compared with an annual average of an infection rate of 10 to 20. Yeah, I can't remember the answer to this, but we should uh, explain what, uh, why there's been this uptick. Well, it's a little... There's been an uptick in measles cases because vaccine rates has been declining. Mm. Um, this has been prompt. This has prompted a government information campaign. Daycare centers have been demanding the right to refuse children who have not been vaccinated. At the moment, that's not legally possible. Um, the last measles epidemic in the Netherlands hit the Dutch Bible Belt in 2013. In total, uh, 2,600 people were diagnosed with the measles. The outbreak was concentrated in families with young children who had not been vaccinated for religious reasons. Uh, one girl who had not been vaccinated died. However, the RIVM, the Public Health Institute, said at the moment that no link can be made between the Hague cases and the drop and the total number of children being vaccinated in the Netherlands. Regardless, it's bad. Vaccinate kids. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, and I think that, but there have been wider concerns raised. Well, they haven't made a, a specific link in this case. They've yeah. said that the vaccination rate is down to just over 90%. Yeah, which is and not... I think you need 95%, I think, for her immunity. For her immunity. immunity. Yeah. yeah. So obviously that increases the risk to, to everybody, right. yeah, especially the younger children who right. are too young to be vaccinated. vaccinated. Or yeah. immunocompromised children who can't be vaccinated and then yes. are also more susceptible to having serious health consequences as yeah. a result of catching a disease like measles. Yeah, so it's a bad thing. They've always said you, you can't make vaccine compulsory in the Netherlands because of the Bible Belt and because there are people who object on grounds of conscience but yeah. uh, when you get a situation like this it kind of yeah um, shows what a yeah th- those kinds of decisions have real consequences yeah they have real consequences yeah so and is the government doing anything 
Coalition Party de Sessestag is urging Parliament to bring forward the vote on a plan to allow creches to refuse children who have not been vaccinated. De Sessestag MP Rens Reimacher said the outbreak is a result of the drop in children being vaccinated against the disease, although, as we just discussed, we don't yet know if those two things are related. Yeah. But, I mean, I do think that, like, creches should be able to turn around. Yeah, that's... that's should be allowed to turn sensible. away, yeah, the, the, unvaccinated yeah, the, kids. They have a duty to the, you know, to, to the care and health of the children that are in their care. Yeah. The Dutch Parliament has voted to safeguard the rights of British citizens living in the Netherlands after Brexit, whenever that happens. CDA MP Peter Omzicht and his Deeseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseseses
Dutch jihadis can currently only return to the Netherlands if they manage to get to a Dutch embassy or consulate on their own. Which can be tricky because there isn't one in the Yeah, there's not one. Living. Yeah. Yeah. And in February, Hrappahaus said that the Netherlands is, quote, looking into the option of moving Dutch women and children living in refugee camps in Syria to safe areas where they can return to the Netherlands. That followed the Dutch children ombudsman's renewing her call that the government bring back children who are stopping camps in Syria because their parents supported IS. Yeah, it is kind of literally a catch-22 situation, isn't it? Because you need to get to an embassy to cross a border, but quite often you need to cross the border to get to, get to, the, to the embassy. embassy. Yeah. yeah. So you're really stumped. Yeah, on the other hand, you know, I understand that the Dutch government doesn't want to risk the life of, you know, Dutch citizens to go rescue these people. Like, it does not play out super well in the media. And a lot of no. these situations are really, really tricky, right? Like, to get people out of there. So yeah. it's not necessarily just a matter of, like, we don't want to put them on a plane and send them home. You know, oftentimes they're in places that are difficult to access. No, that's true. But I would like to hear more from the, the people who actually specialize in uh, in dealing with these people hands-on. How, what is the actual real risk as yeah. opposed to the theoretical risk? If a five-year-old is repatriated, are they really going to grow up to be a terrorist? I think the con- Concern, at least that Hrappahaus was talking about in January when he made this, is, is that actually transporting these people from mm. where they are to the Netherlands poses security threats, right? Because a lot yes. of times they're in places where you can't just like get on a train and go to the airport and fly here. Like that, that is not quite as much of an issue. I mean, it is a concern that like you bring people like this back and that they may continue their like terrorist yeah. extremist activities here. But also, I mean, a number of these women and children are in refugee camps in Syria. Like it's hard to get in and out of there and it's a little unclear whether or not you could even send a delegation or get them onto a flight, like how exactly that's going to happen. Yeah. So this was the discussion with the Red Cross is, is like can the Red Cross assist them in like leaving these camps to like travel to a place where they could get on a plane and fly back to the Netherlands yeah. and how many kids are we actually talking about here there's about 30 women and about 65 children that are thought to be in Kurdish refugee camps in northern Syria that's according to the IVD the security service that number includes two orphans whose mothers died at the beginning of this year number does not include British national Shamima Begum who is married to a Dutch citizen but is not one herself yeah. we discussed and her very case very unlikely to get citizenship citizenship yeah. Yeah. yeah we discussed her case on a previous podcast in sports news, Ajax went top of the Eredivisie for the first time in more than a thousand days on Wednesday night by winning 5-2 at struggling Emmen. However, their glory day was just that as PSV overtook them again on Thursday when they swept Pex Voller aside 4-0. Those results, combined with Ajax's 3-1 victory over PSV in Amsterdam on Sunday, mean the two clubs are now separated by just two points with six games to go. At the foot of the table, Nac Breda closed the gap on Emmen to four points, the last gasp win at Excelsior, and the bottom two clubs play what now looks like a crucial match in Breda next Friday, April the 12th. And there's news about the uh, world's highest paid Dutch sports person. Yep, uh, this is not Max Verstappen or Frenkie de Jong. In fact, our listeners are more likely to have heard of him than the average Dutch person because Zander Bochartz plays at shortstop for the Boston Red Sox. And he's just signed a new six-year contract for oh, them. you know, I had actually had heard about this. Yeah, I thought you might. See, yeah. I told you there was a good sports story Yeah, it's for a good you. sports story. Yeah. So he plays baseball, which in Dutch has the delightful name of... Honkball. Honkball. I yeah, love which it. I think is a much better name than it baseball. It is true. It's 100% true. <laughs> Bochertz, who's 26, was born in Oranjestad in Aruba, uh, so he has a Dutch passport, and his new contract is reputed to bring his annual salary up to $22 million, which at current rates is 17.8 million euros. That's more than the 16 million that de Jong will earn when he goes to Barcelona in the summer. Although some reports say that Verstappen earns 20 million with Red Bull, so it's a little unclear. Bochart has played for the Dutch national team, incidentally. In fact, he was in the Netherlands World Cup winning squad in 2011 and has also played in the World Baseball Classic in 2013 and 2017. Good for him. So, Although I'm not a Red Sox fan. So. Oh, well, okay. Have you got a baseball team? Not, I don't really cheer for like baseball like no. that that much. Probably maybe the Orioles, the Baltimore Orioles. I right. don't know. 
That's not. Any, I don't... any particular reason that you're attached to them? Uh, because I, where I went to university was like near the Orioles, and I have a friend that like works uh. for them, so we used to get like tickets to free Orioles games, and the food at the Orioles Stadium was quite nice. It's like a beautiful baseball stadium, so I cool. guess maybe the Orioles. Yeah, food's definitely a consideration. You know, I've got a soft spot for Kilmarnock in Scottish football purely because they make the best pies. Yeah, in Scottish it's football. like it's very yeah. important. Yeah. yeah. Gordon, would you like to own a gun that someone used to kill themselves? Well, you know, the way Brexit's going, it's getting quite tempting. <laughs> because you could! Because the gun that Vincent Van Gogh is thought to have used to kill himself will be put up for auction by Auction Art on June 19th in Paris. So Vincent Van who? Vincent Van Gogh. <laughs> the weapon, uh, Le Faucheux, was found in 1965 by a farmer in the field where the painter allegedly shot himself in July 1890. It was handed over by the owner of the inn where Van Gogh lodged at the time and where he died from his injuries two days later. The gun stayed in the family and was exhibited for the first time at the Van Gogh Museum in 2016. Do we know this was definitely the weapon that Van Gogh used to shoot himself though? According to Tayo Mendedorp of the Van Gogh Museum, it is not possible to say with 100% certainty. According to experts, the revolver wasn't a good choice for committing suicide. I love that there's experts on this. <laughs> yeah. It was more used to scare away burglars. This could explain why Van Gogh did not die on the spot, but instead died two days later. The gun apparently didn't have a lot of firepower, so uh, like, the right. bullet kind of like hung out inside of him. Do you think there's a kind of like sort of TripAdvisor style uh, website somewhere that rates guns according to how effective they are in uh, taking your own life? Possibly. I mean, there is that like suicide club in the Netherlands That's that true. will organize the suicide powder for you. I bet you they could give you some advice yeah. on that. They probably would have uh, expertise in this field. How much is a gun likely to fetch at sale? The auction house thinks it's going to set somebody back between 40,000 and 60,000 euros. Woof, that's, that's a heck of a lot. That's, a, that's expensive for a rusted gun. We'll be discussing the latest figures on painkiller use and the government's response after this word from our sponsors. For over 30 years, Access has been helping internationals settle in the Netherlands. Access is staffed by an all-volunteer team, themselves internationals, who know firsthand about the challenges of settling in a new country. They can answer your questions or guide you to the right resources, and they also offer an on-call counselling service. You can find out more information about Access on their website, access-nl.org, by emailing the helpdesk at helpdesk at access-nl.org, or by dropping into one of their expat centres in The Hague, Utrecht, Amsterdam or Leiden. It's often said that no matter how much pain you're in, a Dutch doctor will give you two paracetamol, unless you break a leg, in which case you might get three. But in the past seven years, the number of people being prescribed strong opiate painkillers has increased by 55%, according to figures from the Dutch Health Insurers Association. Health Minister Bruno Brams has described the rise as worrying, not least because the number of people overdosing on oxycodone, a powerful painkiller, has gone up sixfold. So what's driving the increase, and how concerned should we be? So what... Um, what exactly do the latest figures tell us, Gordon? Okay, so the latest figures are from Zorgverzekeraars Nederland are for 2017, and they're based on invoices submitted by pharmacies to health insurers. They show that a million people were being prescribed painkillers such as oxycodone and tramadol, and 218,000 of them have been taking the drugs for more than three months. So, And, and the point is oxycodone was never designed to be used in that way. It, it's very addictive, it's twice as powerful as morphine, and it's supposed to be prescribed long-term only to terminal cancer patients. 
patients. In most cases, they're prescribed by family doctors and 60% of patients are female. So what are the concerns like with oxycodone specifically? So in the Netherlands, uh, 280 people overdosed on the drug in 2017. Wow, that's really high. I didn't yeah. know the numbers were that high. Yeah, and then they suspect, as we'll move on to later, they suspect, as we'll explain later, the, the real figure is, uh, is quite a bit higher. Uh, the figures are published by the Toxicology Centre, uh, NVIC, uh, in last August, and that compares to 43 recorded overdoses 10 years earlier. So that's it's uh, a big uptick. It's a big uptick. There are also 215 overdoses in the first six months of 2018. Jeez. So the figures for last year are almost, cert- are almost certainly going like to be quite a bit almost higher. really an epidemic at this point. Well, people have talked about it as a silent epidemic. Yeah. That phrase has been used. Figures don't record if anyone's died as a result of an overdose. And uh, one of the yeah, issues, wider issues in the Netherlands is that there is no system like inquests for investigating um, you know, suspicious overdoses. and suspicious yeah. deaths and uh, violent deaths. So NVIC also says the true figure could be much higher because it only registers cases where a doctor has asked for help with a patient who's taken too much of the drug. Oh, okay. So, so it's only sort of formalised overdoses right. that have actually been recorded in the health system, medical system. Uh, oxycodone's also been the centre of a health scare in the United States. Well, not more than a health scare, actually. Oh, it's like a serious, yeah, it's, it's huge. Where in the mid-1990s, it was marketed to treat a broad range of conditions from back pain to injuries sustained in car accidents. Uh, Purdue Pharma, which sold the drug under the name Oxycontin, doubled its sales team and held symposia in locations like Florida and California. There's lots of old people. Yeah. And uh, and also it's a, it's a nice place for doctors to go away for yeah. conference with their families. The result was that prescriptions increased tenfold in six years, but at a cost because more than 12,000 people a year died of overdoses involving prescription opioids in the US in 2007. And that number's since risen to 17,000 by 2017 and Donald Trump has declared the opioid crisis to be a national emergency. Yeah, although he's also declared the border to be a national emergency. Yeah. And he actually basically is a national emergency. Yeah, he's so a national emergency. But, um, but getting back to... Yeah, so this is the company, um, Purdue Pharma, which is owned by the Sackler family. It's like a privately held um, uh, multinational like sort of company. Mm-hmm. It paid out in 2007 one of the largest pharmaceutical fines in the U.S. Yeah. for sort of criminal negligence. Basically what they had said was is they told doctors that these this new drug, Oxycontin as it's called like in the US, was not addictive and that you could give it to people for like long-term pain mm. care even though they had studies that showed that it was addictive and yeah. that this was like not healthy for people. Yeah. And, and it was, was known as well that it didn't work as a long-term pain care yeah. either because it gradually it becomes less effective. Yeah. And you, have, you need more and more of it. Yeah. There were like three three executives from the company I think that have been brought up on criminal charges related mm-hmm. to this kinds of stuff um, and there's been a huge backlash about this whole thing. I mean the US like this is a real, it's become a serious problem right. that people have Yeah, major scandal. And like many parts of the country where there are a lot of um, like sort of former blue collar workers who are have been out of work and are on some kind of disability. Maybe these are like um, people who were working in mining and now there's like less industry and that kinds of stuff. Um, There's been like a huge uptick in these in, in opiate overdoses and then on top of that heroin because once people have sort of maxed out on their ability to get high mm. on Oxycontin they have turned to heroin yeah. and it has become just tremendous and there's been a ton of articles written about like sort of the impact of this um, and the big scandal like this last week or two was is that a number of museums have in the US have declared that they are no longer taking money donations from the Sackler family because mm-hmm. it's like been so tainted like by this right. uh, drug overdose yeah. that sort of scandal so what in the in the Netherlands, what are the politicians mm. saying? So for a long time, there hasn't really been any major concern about this. And as recently as last month, Health Minister Bruno Brahms said that opioid use was not a problem in society. But after the insurers produced their figures this week, Brahms described
described the rising use of strong painkillers as worrying and said that while the Netherlands was not in the same situation as the United States, as we just described, he, quote, we do need to take steps. So they're obviously concerned that they may be at the bottom of the slope here yeah. and things will get worse if they don't uh, check it now. He's due to hold meetings with organisations involved in the health sector next week. And what what, are the, what does the health sector say? I mean, what do medical experts say? So uh, Albert Dahan, who's a pain specialist based in Leiden, has said the problem has been under the radar for a long time and the use of painkillers has crept up. Initially, it was family doctors uh, who uh, took the blame for prescribing uh, bulk of opioids, around 75% in 2010. Uh, and the suspicion was that it was being uh, done to stop patients coming back and taking up clinical time. More recently, the proportion uh, that's been prescribed by specialists has uh, been on the increase as well, uh, but it is mainly still family doctors. Some, some doctors, on the other hand, claimed that hospitals were prescribing the drug in order to improve their scores on pain relief. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the patient feedback scores. Though Brown's denied that there's any such incentive. And Hans-André Schuppers, who's the chairman of the Dutch Orthopaedic Association, said it's been used to get patients out of hospital faster. So they're sent home on day one with a box of oxycodone rather than have them take up a bed for five days on yeah. milder pain killers. So there's all kinds of uh, accusations of perverse incentives and the commercialization of healthcare flying around. Dahan says that the drugs don't work as a long-term treatment, uh, as we've d- discussed, but when patients come off them, they get flu-like symptoms that make them crave another dose, at which point it's become, uh, they then have an addiction problem. Right. Given the numbers involved, he says he's no doubt that patients have died in the Netherlands as a result of opioid overdoses. Oh, it's so upsetting. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. So what are they proposing for solutions to these problems? Well, Dahan says doctors and hospitals should be more cautious with repeat prescriptions rather than just dishing them out. So it's often the uh, issue that you're sent home with a painkiller and a repeat prescription, so then right. you automatically get... You're then on the painkiller for mm-hmm. several months, which is not how it's meant to be used. He says there should also be more research into other forms of pain relief that aren't based on opiates, and so they are, uh, are less addictive. Um, he told Newsier, quote, we should be looking out for a new oxycodone that is less addictive, has fewer side effects and carries a lower risk of intoxication and death. Seems like, Seems like a good thing, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Fairly, a fairly good uh, strategy to adopt. Bruno Browns wants doctors, pharmacies and hospitals to improve their communications so that patients receive better advice about taking painkillers, but also about how to reduce their dose yeah. uh, as the pain subsides. So yeah, at this point it seems to be still treated as a kind of administrative um, yeah. challenge. So you kind of hope that the checks and balances in the Dutch healthcare system would prevent a kind of that kind of aggressive marketing taking place here. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting because, you know, you, I, I mean, I'm not sure what your experience with the healthcare system has been, Gordon, but in my experience, it's like really hard to get doctors to prescribe you anything, yeah. uh, let alone any sort of painkiller um, that like when I had my IUD replaced at the beginning of this year, which for the listeners involves yanking something out of your uterus and then shoving something back in. Mm. I got zero painkillers, yeah. which I disagreed with vehemently. You don't need a month of prescription of Oxycontin for this, but like, you know, a couple of them for a few days would have been extremely useful. Mm-hmm. So it's it's surprising kind of to me that we have this situation where doctors are like overprescribing these these opioids because I think in my experience and the experience of many internationals, this is that it's really hard to get Dutch doctors to give you anything. I think the yeah the anecdotal experience is often that uh, yeah Dutch doctors and uh, uh, medics tend to be very reticent yeah. uh, with uh, prescribing painkillers. I mean, even when my wife was dying of cancer, this is my main experience of it. They, they were very rigorous about sort of starting on the low painkillers yeah. and gradually building up. If that wasn't enough, when you know, she was obviously in severe pain, she had tumors up and down her spine. She yeah. didn't, and also she didn't have very long to live. She so kind of thought, why not start on something stronger? Yeah. And also they, they warned her of like addiction issues. With, with cocodamol but you know long term addiction problem wasn't an issue because she wasn't going to be alive for very long yeah. to me they should have prioritised just making sure she was comfortable for what time she had left rather than having some worries about you know addiction which wasn't really relevant so again it sort of surprises me that, that this is the case that we're in but these numbers are really quite 
Yeah. Hi. I mean, maybe 280 doesn't sound like that many people, but in a population of only 17 million, exactly, I mean, that's yeah. like a that's a considerable amount. Yeah, and the fact that it's increased by such uh, such a big amount, such a big yeah. amount in a short time, suggests there is a big underlying problem that's not being right. addressed. Yeah. I yeah. mean, is there any indication as to whether or not people are being prescribed more painkillers to deal with Brexit? Because I feel like it, the, the, it's, it's a, there is a, certainly a lot of pain uh, yeah. in, 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 associated with Brexit going on, so it could well be. Yeah. I said no. In, 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 in also, in with people are well. I, I've heard anecdotally, maybe not actual physical pain, but people suffering insomnia and you know yeah, anxiety, anxiety, extreme anxiety as a result of Brexit. That, that is definitely a thing. Yeah. So yeah. maybe that's maybe it's Brexit's fault. It all comes back to Brexit. All comes back to Brexit. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast.dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also now back us on Patreon and earn yourself a free shout-out on the podcast at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. Are we going to say nice things about people or mean things about them? when they go Whatever they want. Whatever they to want. To be honest, if they're paying us, you know, they, they really... They, 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 they call the tune on that Okay. Yeah. My Are you going to say, I love lavender strope waffles, if somebody wants to pay you to say that? They're going to have to pay quite a lot for that. Okay. To say. Somebody but please donate enough money for this. That's going to be the 50 euro. Uh, Only 50 uh, euros? Gee, yeah, I, I would charge way 50 more. euros, I would say. Uh, for 50 euros, Gordon will say he loves <laughs> lavender strope waffles yep, on the podcast. that's on the record. My thanks to Molly Quell, not to Pearl Peters. I'm Gordon Darragh, and we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.